Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting private equity funds today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice based here in New York City. Joining me today on the show will be Katie Lancalis with LLR Partners and Patrick Whitehead with Morgan Stanley Capital Partners. We'll be discussing growth in the private credit market, how restrictive financing conditions could impact PE returns, and how the deal landscape could shape up in 2023. Just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. So with that out of the way, let's formally introduce our guests. First, I'd like to introduce Katie Lancalis, VP at LLR Partners, where she focuses on industrial, tech, and security sectors. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here today. Awesome. Great to have you. Next, I'd like to introduce Patrick Whitehead. Patrick is Executive Director at Morgan Stanley Capital Partners and focuses on growth and value creation in middle market industrial and business services companies. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you, Todd. Great to be here. And I'm looking forward to the discussion with you and Katie today. As am I. Thank you. All right, Katie. So I know you've been at LLR uh, for a few years now. Maybe you can share a little bit about your role at LLR and what you focus on. Yeah, of course. So LLR, we're a lower middle market private equity firm, and we invest in technology and healthcare businesses. Since our founding, we've raised more than $5 billion of capital across six funds. I'm part of the industrial technology investment team, and I specifically focus around commercial and industrial services. Within that, there are three main pillars, facility, infrastructure, and industrial. And all of that is focused on B2B outsourced services. We're looking to invest in businesses with non-discretionary and non-deferrable demand and high revenue visibility. And it's ultimately trying to find service lines that represent a small percentage of their customer's budget, but have a high impact and a high risk of failure if the services are not performed. Uh, We tend to focus on businesses that either require a highly technical skill set, have a tech-enabled delivery model, or are serving technology end markets. And so my role on the team covers the full life cycle of investing from new deal sourcing, diligence, and execution on the front end, and then staying involved with the businesses throughout the entire investment hold to help drive value creation and hopefully successful exits. Gotcha. So understanding your focus, Katie, just staying with you here, uh, is there a specific stage of growth you target? And I guess additionally, have you had uh, to become more specialized in the companies you target as competition in the sector grows? Yeah, we target growth-oriented businesses. So we're looking to invest in companies that have a proven, scalable business model and a track record of success, but maybe at an inflection point where they need support or guidance or investment to continue hitting their targets. Uh, in terms of competition, you know, I think it's critical to be specialized. As a firm, we take a thematic approach to investing. So we spend time and resources up front to research the market understand growth drivers and develop a network in the space. And that upfront work has a big impact. It helps us connect with management teams, gain conviction and opportunities, and prove that we can add value beyond just providing capital. 
thesis-driven investing has helped us source proprietary opportunities as well as position ourselves as the preferred buyer when there is an auction. So I, I think it I think it is important just to have a seat at the table. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of us in the deal markets have uh, learned you got to be specialized to really compete and add some value. So appreciate that. Patrick, over to you. Can you talk a little bit about your role at Morgan Stanley Capital Partners? Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to. Maybe I'll give just a quick overview of our business and then a little more detail on where I spend most of my time. That sounds great. Capital Partners is Morgan Stanley's U.S. mid-market buyout platform, which is part of a broader private credit and equity investing platform that encompasses about 240 investment professionals and about $40 billion of AUM. Our philosophy here at Capital Partners is really all about investing in companies to accelerate growth. We look to partner with strong teams in industries that we know to build great businesses. Similar to what Katie described, we really believe that Alpha lives in the middle market, and our approach is focusing, focused on leveraging the scale and expertise of Morgan Stanley while bringing operational resources and expertise to support our portfolio companies. And that's really where my role comes in. I'm focused specifically on developing the value creation plan, starting pre-investment and starting with diligence, then working with our portfolio company management teams to identify the short list of things that we believe will really move the needle. And then finally, ensuring that we plan, resource, and execute those projects during our hold. I joined Capital Partners about four years ago after eight years of management consulting. And I've, as you said, I've split my time between our services and industrials investments. Great. I appreciate you having you on with your value creation focus as we'll, we'll certainly get into some of that later on. So I know you focus on B2B services and manufacturing sectors. So the question for you is, what have you seen from these sectors in recent months and and what's your outlook for, for 2023? I mean, I know supply chain issues have eased up somewhat. So I'm assuming that's a good sign, but feel free to share any thoughts there as well. Yeah, you know, honestly, I could I could spend the rest of the day talking about this one. Um, needless to say, 2021 and 22 were volatile years, to say the least. But maybe I'll focus on two themes which I think are relevant across sectors, and those are labor and supply chain, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So first, first on labor, in many ways, the last couple of years have really been a labor market story. Skilled labor has become increasingly hard to find and retain across industries. Wage expectations have skyrocketed. And as we've all seen, white-collar working preferences have shifted towards remote or hybrid work. My view is there's no doubt that some of these things have changed permanently, and we're really moving into a new paradigm. But some of those permanent shifts aside, we are seeing positive signs in the labor market. We've been highly focused on driving employee retention and reducing turnover, and we're seeing the results. Given the potential macro overhang and potential softening, personally, I think we'll see continued declines in wage pressure and declines in turnover. And overall, we'll start to move towards a more favorable market for employers. Next on the supply chain, supply chain has really been a big focus of mine across our portfolio. We made a concerted effort to go along on inventory and build up sufficient buffer so that we could weather the shortages and significantly increase lead times that many industries have seen in the last year or two. We've really seen material signs of improvement here. Container shipping rates are normalizing, although still not back to normal. Production lead times are coming down, and many suppliers are once again willing to negotiate on terms, which we think is a great environment for businesses that are growing. To take the long view, I think we're in for a really interesting decade as companies continue digesting the impacts of COVID. I'm hopeful we'll see continued reshoring and manufacturing where it makes sense. I think we'll see increased supply chain durability and strength. And I think we'll see a real focus on transparency and visibility. It's grounded in data, which maybe 
didn't exist to the same degree prior to COVID. All right. Well, I appreciate you being concise there, even though you could have talked uh, for days. Maybe we'll we'll have you back on a uh, future episode. But um, I guess let's let's move on with some of the background info on uh, both the out of the way. We can uh, dive into our broader uh, conversation. So we've seen some indications that inflation may come down later this year as the CPI has recently fallen. So, Patrick, we'll start with you on this one. Just curious how you think P.E. might respond. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think inflation is another topic, which I think is relevant to virtually every industry sector and every company out there today. We talked a bit about labor cost pressure specifically a few minutes ago, but more broadly, we've seen the price of almost everything increase over the last 18 months from commodities to finished goods to services. Managing pricing and growing margins has really been an important focus area of ours over the last couple of years. And I would imagine that others have been similarly focused. So thinking ahead, we really view the end consumer as the best leading indicator here. Across most industries, the consumer really ultimately bears the cost of most pricing actions. And we see some early signs that consumers are starting to get fed up and aren't going to be accepting further increases. In fact, there was just a Wall Street Journal article a few weeks ago about grocery shoppers rebelling against future increases. And I think we'll see more of that to come across industries and across consumer groups. So taking some of this trending together, this degree of price fatigue combined with a potentially softer macro environment leads me to believe that the pricing paradigm really may be starting to shift. I think we're going to see a return towards a more focused and you know surgical approach to pricing value creation rather than the broad-based inflationary price increases, which we've seen across most industries in recent quarters. Gotcha. Certainly appreciate that perspective, kind of focusing on the, uh, the uh, end consumer for sure. So we've been in this environment of high inflation for a little over a year now and generally have entered a period of macroeconomic uncertainty. Katie, I guess I'll start with you on this one is, you know, how has that impacted what value creation tactics you and the team at uh, LLR may pursue? Yeah, I think it's twofold. You know, the first being proactive about potential risks. And the second is looking at ways to play offense. So, you know, on on the defensive side, you know, given the headwinds we are seeing in the market, the significant layoffs that are announced by all these major firms, and just overall uncertainty, we're encouraging all of our companies to think through recession preparedness. A key theme uh, that we talk about a lot is investing behind revenue. And then across the firm, there's a board level mandate to think through scenario planning to ensure that interest rate increases are in all of our assumptions and just evaluate what proactive measures can or should be taken at each of our companies. Each situation, each company will be different, but I think being proactive about risks is is really important. And then on the flip side, uh, you know, down markets are also an opportunity to go on go on the offensive. Across our portfolio, we will continue to look at ways to invest efficiently and with purpose, and we have access to capital. And we will continue to support our portfolio companies to execute on add-on acquisitions. You know, purchasing add-ons, particularly in a market where you may be able to get it at accretive values, is a proven lever to drive down platform entry multiples and can really help drive performance during a period of slower growth. So those are kind of two areas, you know, defense and offense that we're looking at across our portfolio. Sure. Well, the, the scenario planning is key. I guess there's a follow-up there, and you may have touched on uh, a, a few of your uh, your responses here, but how do you continue to show growth in your portfolios? Yeah, I think it comes down to making strategic bets. 
you know, whether that's organic investments or, you know, looking uh, aggressively at acquisitions, you know, taking advantage of a period when other companies may be retrenching and support the businesses that we own uh, to continue to grow through this market. All good ideas to me. Sounds good. So Patrick, over to you. Curious how that is playing out for you. Perhaps you can share what strategies you're using to drive value creation in this uh, volatile macro environment. Absolutely. We we have been focused on and really think it's a differentiating factor that we are focused on driving operational value creation and really supporting our portfolio company management teams with the resources, the expertise, and the capital that they need to continue driving growth. We think this kind of playbook can and does drive value creation throughout the cycle. But given where we are, there are a few things to highlight specifically where we've been focused in the last 12 to 18 months. And I'll go through these quickly because I think, I think Katie covered it really well. But mm-hmm. we're, focused, we're focused on a few things. So first is pricing. And I know we discussed inflation a minute ago, but I, I think it's worth repeating. Given the volatility out there and given the very high levels of inflation, we've been spending time with all of our portfolio companies to ensure we're taking a strategic and analytical lens to pricing and that we are at least maintaining, if not expanding margins wherever possible. On the flip side, we're also focused on efficiency. This is always a focus area in good times or in less good times, but particularly in the last six to 12 months, we've worked across all of our portfolio companies to continue resourcing and planning for growth, but also to maintain a focus on efficiency and productivity. And more recently, similar to what Katie described, we've worked with each of our portfolio companies to develop cost contingency plans should demand soften in 2023, so that we're ready to take those mitigating actions ASAP rather than being caught unprepared. Finally, similar to what Katie described, we've been focused on identifying opportunities to go on the offense, both organically and through M&A. In a volatile market where some companies have had production, staffing, or other issues, we've made a concerted effort to seek out new customers and to use this time as an opportunity to develop new relationships and prove out our value. And we've also used the, the time to identify and seek out potential add-on opportunities. We're highly focused on executing accretive add-ons across the portfolio, and we often seek to acquire these businesses from founders or other family business owners. I, I really think the recent macro climate has caused some business owners to reevaluate their plans and their time horizon, and perhaps seek liquidity sooner than they might have planned on. So we focus on identifying and unlocking those opportunities in a volatile time. Gotcha. Well, listen, we always appreciate it when our guests uh, share some of the pages from their uh, playbook, uh, especially when it comes to value creation in this uh, environment. So thank you. So we've all seen higher interest rates, which have led to certainly more restrictive financing conditions. So Katie, this one's over to you. Can you talk a bit about uh, access to debt capital and how it's influencing your M&A strategies? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, capital is becoming more expensive. Interest rates have increased significantly, and I think we all think more rate hikes are anticipated for 2023. And on top of the base rates, we have seen spreads widen by 50 to 100 basis points, if not more. And the impact is on the amount of leverage potentially available out of the gate, as well as the cost of debt servicing over the course of our three to seven year investment hold. Both of these factors become part of our forecast, they become part of our returns model, and ultimately influences what valuations we can support to secure our targeted returns. In the public markets, you know, we've already seen a pullback on valuations, and I would expect that adjustment to trickle down to the private markets as well. You know, in my view, the firms that will be successful uh, at M&A in this environment are going to be the ones that drive value creation and operational excellence in their investments, rather than just relying on financial engineering. 
Gotcha. Well, certainly with the conversations I'm having with other clients, lots of folks are certainly seeing a reset in those valuations and valuations uh, expectations. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, Patrick, over to you. So in, in this stricter financing environment, uh, what is your perspective on the role leverage will play to drive returns? It's a great question. And similar to Katie, you know, I think it's highly relevant given what we've seen in the credit markets. Just to echo Katie's points, you know, base rate increases, credit spread widening, and overall levels of leverage coming down, I think, generally across the market. It's my view that a prudent amount of leverage and, and an optimized capital structure has always been the right thing for a company's performance. And I think debt financing is a key part of that, providing capital to support building out the management team, driving organic growth, and funding M&A. But given how the market is evolving and what's happened in the last six to nine months, I think we'll see a period of generally lower leverage across companies, with the primary goal really being managing debt service costs in a time of increased interest rates. Similar to how Katie described it, my personal view is that this general change in market leverage is going to drive a real bifurcation in performance. I think you're going to see some deals which were dependent on extreme levels of leverage and in, in financial engineering perform below expectations, frankly. But at the same time, I think you're going to see operationally oriented investors who can really roll up their sleeves and drive value distinguish themselves. So I think the next one, two, three years, perhaps beyond, will really be an interesting time to think about performance, think about strategy, and think about how some of those investment strategies may bifurcate. Yeah, I appreciate all that. Um, certainly interesting times to come and the bifurcation is, uh, is exactly right. So we shall see. Uh, how about Katie, over to you to kind of wrap up this particular topic. Uh, do you care to share your thoughts regarding how more restrictive financing conditions might contribute to ROI? Yeah, you know, I agree with Patrick. It's for every investment, it's always about finding the optimal capital structure and doing what's prudent and what's best for the business. But as we think about, you know, what lower leverage levels could mean on returns, I mean, it will have a direct impact. I mean, more modest leverage upfront may require the gap to be made up with higher equity checks. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you know, more cash flow will be going to interest payments throughout the course of the hold as the cost of debt has effectively doubled at this point. You know, both of those factors, you know, impact returns directly. And so, you know, focus on operations, focus on value creation, focus on driving performance is absolutely critical uh, so that you can make up for some of that impact. Yeah, well, lot, lots of good insight uh, from both of you. Not uh, shocked. You're you're agreeing on uh, a lot of the, uh, the the responses there, so I appreciate that. Um, let's turn to the uh, private credit market. Uh, we've seen growth in the private credit market in recent years, and its returns are now approaching that of private equity. So I'd like to hear from both of you on why you think we've seen this growth and what your outlook is for the private credit market going forward. Uh, Patrick, let's come to you first on this one. I think it's an interesting topic. And no yeah. doubt, we've seen the private credit market expand significantly in the last five to 10 years. In my opinion, this has really been driven largely by the ability of private credit to provide an efficient and an effective financing solution for middle market investors and companies. What this looks like, at least to us, is that private credit providers are often able to provide a range of financing solutions from a traditional first lien, second lien structure to a unitron structure, to everything in between. There are really a couple of benefits here. This range of options gives borrowers flexibility, 
And often it also allows these private credit providers or lenders to move at the speed that sponsors need during a competitive process. Given these attributes, specifically the flexibility, the speed, and the overall growth in the base, I think we're going to continue to see lots of activity in this asset class. And particularly given the elevated interest rate environment and the elevated cost of debt, I think this is going to be a really interesting area to watch in the next couple of years. Yeah, certainly an interesting prediction and uh, tend to agree with you there. So Katie, I'm curious to hear what you have to say on the uh, on the topic. What's your outlook for the private credit market? I think it's tough to say if there will be an immediate term impact on the private credit market. You know, rising interest rates may make it more difficult for borrowers that are already in the portfolios to service their debt. And that could put pressure on portfolio performance for some of the funds. Uh, the extent of the difficulties will likely be determined by how deep and how long market conditions last. But I think that's a lot of that's still unknown. However, long term, you know, I agree with Patrick. I anticipate this to be a growing asset class. Gotcha. Good, good predictions from both of you. So another thing I'd like to discuss is the record levels of dry powder we're seeing. Uh, according to some estimates, uh, firms hold a collective 1.96 trillion, almost 2 trillion in dry powder. So not surprisingly, we've been hearing that the competition for quality assets is still strong. So Katie, I'll come to you first on this one. How do you think deal activity is going to look different in 2023? Yeah, I you know I absolutely think competition will only continue to increase. In any process, we're already asking ourselves what angle do we have, or how can we win this outside of just paying the highest price. You know, it's increasingly important to build a relationship before a process and demonstrate value add beyond just being a provider of capital. You know, in in terms of 2023, you know, based on conversations I've been having. I anticipate that at least for the beginning of the year, there will be less inbound activity and fewer broad auctions. You know, stock market volatility, rising interest rates, overall pullback and valuations have caused many banker-led processes to pause or delay launch altogether. Uh, you know, I think there could be more special situations, limited looks, or opportunities where companies come to market with an immediate need. And then my team is also driving resources around thesis-led work and being very proactive on sourcing. Also, you know, one area that is getting a lot of attention is more creative deal structures. So including minority investments or all equity deals. You know, minority deals in particular seem to resonate, uh, you know, where the owners have the opportunity to get some liquidity, partner with a well-funded firm, and go on offense in a down market, while ultimately exiting and getting a second bite of the apple when we get to the other side. So, you know, overall... I think it's fair to say that nobody really knows what 23 will look like at this point, but I, I think it'll be a little bit different than the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, understood. In, in addition to my private equity clients, I probably cover uh, a couple hundred uh, sell-side shops across the, uh, the country, and I know a lot of banker friends are certainly holding their assets and uh, delaying bringing some uh, some deals to market, so... That could all catch up as the year plays out, but we shall see. So, Patrick, over to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on how uh, this record amount of dry powder might impact competition for deals and changes to uh, deal activity overall? Yeah, I've seen very similar figures and trending to um, to what you and Katie mentioned. Right. I think what I was reading is that the, the level of dry powder has set a new record essentially each year for the past couple of years. And I think in addition to the total volume of uninvested capital, the latest I've seen is that the stock of dry powder is also getting slightly older, which adds just further pressure to the system to invest. 
in my view, as you said, Todd, what this all means at the macro level is that there's an increasing amount of capital chasing a limited supply of truly A or A plus assets, which just naturally is going to drive continued competition for great deals. I think this increased competition places really an even greater importance on the, uh, the, the need to develop a thesis and the ability to really drive value creation during an investment. My personal view is the era of simply buying and holding your way to a great return is over, at least for now. And I think what that means is growing EBITDA and really building a great business during your investment period is going to be key to success. In 2023 specifically, I mean, first off, I agree with Katie. I think no one really knows. But my personal view is I think we'll see trends vary across industry sectors. In sectors which are more tied to consumer sentiment or discretionary spending, I think we'll naturally see investors be cautious until we have a better sense of where the macro is going. But I think that industries which are defensive or have highly attractive characteristics, such as recurring revenue, great visibility, are going to see continued investor interest and momentum. Gotcha. Well, appreciate all the insight from, from both of you on that topic. Um, that's going to take us to our, uh, our coffee break guest, my video colleague, Mark Houston, who's a managing director in our business advisory services practice. Mark is going to share his thoughts on the refinancing market. Thank you. As Todd mentioned, I'm a managing director in our business advisory services team based out of New York. Our practice assists private equity firms, port codes, and or their lenders with a variety of services for healthy, stressed, and distressed companies. We are brought in as an interim CFO, assist with FP&A and business plan development, M&A integration, supply chain management, performance improvement, operational turnaround, as well as debtor advisory, lender advisory, and special situations. I also lead the financial institutions and specialty finance industry group across all of BDO's services. In this role, I try to connect with as many bank and non-bank lenders in the market to discuss market conditions and the outlook for 2023. The refinancing market has been a challenge in this economic environment. While there are many private debt funds sitting on a lot of dry powder, they have become more cautious to deploy that capital. National, regional, and community banks are also more focused on risk management at this time and continue to move credits into their workout or special asset groups. As many people have read in the headlines, the refinancing market has been particularly a challenge for retailers, restaurants, certain segments of real estate, specialty finance companies, food and beverage manufacturing, automotive, and certain subsectors of healthcare and technology. There is a stronger refinancing market for companies that operate in business and professional services, government contracting, as well as for companies that continue to achieve very strong operating results in this environment. In addition to interest rates increasing, pricing has also increased. Covenant light deals are a thing of the past, and credit agreements are now more restrictive. Lenders are also placing greater emphasis on results in the last six months. Refinancing will be a challenge for companies that have not been achieving their budgeted results. 
It is imperative for companies to forecast accurately and communicate with lenders in a timely manner, leading up to negotiations around refinancing. While strong relationships may exist with a company's existing bank group, it is also beneficial for private equity firms to explore other lenders in the market, particularly private debt funds, who may be able to step in quickly to replace a refinancing partner. The refinancing market will continue to be a challenge in these volatile economic times, and it is important to have regular dialogue with lenders. Our team of 60 professionals who have deep experience in many industries can assist private equity portcos and their lenders in building a bottoms-up business plan or do an assessment on the forecast based on our research and operational due diligence. We can also assist with the monthly close process and financial reporting if the PE fund or lenders want greater visibility into the port codes operations. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Now turning to the second half of our discussion with Katie and Patrick. So guys, we've talked a lot about deal making, financing and value creation. I'd also like to get your perspectives on due diligence and what changes you've seen recently. I certainly have a lot of uh, perspectives here covering a, a few hundred uh, private equity firms that are consistently calling us for uh, for diligence, but I'd like to hear from you guys first. So, you know, our, our clients have really gone from needing due diligence done in, uh, in two to three weeks to being a little bit more relaxed about it today. So Patrick, I guess to you first, what are you seeing? We've had really a similar experience over the last couple of years to what you described, Todd. I think yeah. the processes were highly competitive, and diligence timelines were compressed. I'd be curious what you and your team thought, but in our view, this led to, I think, some general level of fatigue across both investors and their partners in financial, legal, technology, and other key diligence areas. Looking ahead and looking into this year, we're seeing the same general trend as you. In my view, we're getting back towards a more normal type of process dynamic generally and deal timeline. I think this is overall a positive. It gives investors and management teams more time to work together and to get to know each other during diligence and to really figure out how they want to work together post-close. The one potential caveat is for some of those truly A-plus companies that I mentioned earlier. In certain situations, and you know, thinking about this year, that may be where the end market or the industry is not exposed to the cycle, the management team is truly outstanding, or the revenue model and financial performance are terrific. I think we're going to continue to see high levels of interest and competition. And I think this will probably lead to a continual environment where investors who have conviction push to get to deal signing as fast as they can. Gotcha. Well, I guess to respond to you, yes, we, uh, being on the service provider side, we've certainly seen exhaustion and I've seen my Q of E diligence folks doing fact, uh, financial and tax and IT and ops diligence all uh, capacity strained and certainly tested for the last two, two and a half, three years. So um, while I'm sure they welcome the break, we look forward to uh, staying busy for sure. So I guess just wrapping it with you, Patrick, how do you think the, the current deal dynamics will change um, things going forward? I think the next six to 12 months are going to be pretty interesting on this front. 
Yeah. In my view, many investors and many companies are going to remain cautious until we have more clarity on where the overall macro environment and the overall valuation and deal environment are going. If things remain uncertain or soft, I think we'll continue to see a slightly slower deal environment, although that's still relative to some of the recent all-time peaks of 2021 and early 22. But I think if the economy outperforms expectations, I think we may see a return to more normal levels of activity either second half of this year or into 2024. And I think what's particularly interesting is that when momentum and velocity do come back, I think, Todd, you or Katie mentioned this earlier, I think there are lots of great businesses who have been preparing to go to market but have held off until things Mm -hmm. stabilize. And so I think a pretty interesting outcome could be things get back to normal, velocity heats up, and all of a sudden, there are all these great companies who have been waiting in the wings that are now available and looking for a new partner. So I think it's going to be interesting and, and probably pretty exciting. Exciting, I'm hoping, for sure, Patrick. So Katie, you've been waiting patiently on this topic. What are your thoughts on, on how due diligence is evolving and, and what changes you might see coming? I mean, I saw the same thing as both of you. So, um, you know, from my perspective, to a certain degree, we have returned to normal. Um, you know, 2021 was a crazy year. Uh, deal volume was record levels. We were hearing from some of our diligence partners that there were you know, month-long lead times to get an engagement kicked off, which is totally counter to being competitive in a process where speed and certainty are just as important as value. Um, you know, we saw some other groups forgoing what we'd see as typical third-party work just to, you know, hit, hit the typical timelines. But as, you know, we've seen deal activity slow really beginning in the second half of 2022 and what we're seeing in the beginning of this year, it seems like everything's kind of returned to normal. Uh, no two deals are the same. No two processes are the same. We have a set of standard diligence that is expected for all deals. Um, but, you know, I think people are continuing to operate in a kind of more normal way. I would say, you know, echoing Patrick, I think there is a heightened sensitivity around, you know, business diligence, market diligence, and, you know, really making sure there's through cycle resilience. I think that's a that's a big point that people are focusing on. Um, but I do expect um, kind of this coming year in this market that it'll be kind of back back to normal. All right. Well, I uh, I appreciate both of you there. I think we've we we've covered the uh, diligence topic pretty well and. Believe it or not, I'm having so much fun with the two of you. I can't believe we made it to our final question and topic. So I'd like to talk to you guys about exit strategies before we wrap. Uh, Given the uh, macroeconomic conditions we're experiencing today, what do you think needs to happen for a successful exit? Uh, Katie, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, so, you know, Patrick said this earlier, but there's an incredible amount of dry powder that is chasing those A assets. So kind of in terms of what needs to happen to build an A asset and, and get a successful outcome, you know, the number one value driver that I've seen in my space um, is top line growth. So that includes, you know, market driven, company driven, as well as inorganic revenue potential. You know, in a period of slower market growth, you know, successful businesses will need to execute on their company driven initiatives, whether that be expanded to newer underserved markets, introduce new product lines otherwise diversify their revenue streams. And layered on top of that is the ability to drive M&A. A A team that has demonstrated growth, cost synergies, multiple arbitrage, and having that M&A playbook typically earns a premium valuation. So, you know, overall, I think the ability to demonstrate through cycle growth and resilience will be key and will set up our, set up businesses to be successful upon exit. 
I guess as a follow-up to that, so really kind of on what level do you think we'll see that happening? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it'll probably depend by sector. You know, there's certain market headwinds that certain businesses will will have to face and each situation will be different. But I think ones that are, you know, in areas where we tend to try and focus, you know, where there's non-discretionary, non-deferrable demand, you know, critical services that can't that can't be postponed and are required by the customers and truly essential businesses. You know, I think they'll hold up well. They'll execute on their their specific initiatives and, you know, potentially do M&A and, you know, be on be on a really good path. You know, opportunities or businesses that are just fighting against some tougher macro headwinds are probably the ones that have more to overcome. All right. Lots of good stuff packed in there. Thanks, Katie. So, Patrick, I guess, what are your thoughts on exit drivers today? And maybe you can talk a bit about firms deciding to delay exits and, and what economic conditions may need to be to turn the tide. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah. We, we talked, uh, talked a minute ago about the more normalized or the slightly slower deal environment. And I think this is really just the natural other side of that coin. If we're seeing processes get back to normal timelines and fewer new deals come to market, that must mean there are fewer active sellers during this temporary period. I think the temporary lull is really driven by a few things, many of which we've actually covered today. So I think it's a great wrap up. First is just overall economic volatility. So given the uncertainty around growth, inflation, and supply chain, I think it's only natural that some companies have elected to wait six to 12 months before going to market as they wait for conditions to normalize. Second is the credit markets. With average level levels of leverage coming down and the cost of debt going up, I think we're seeing a natural pause in some cases as sponsors recalibrate to a new financing environment. And then finally, is just really overall investor demand and investor sentiment. As you mentioned, Todd, I think 2021 and the first part of 22 were really record-breaking periods. Yeah. And so I think now some investors are really taking the time to digest the deals they've done during those times and really think about strategy, thesis development, and pacing as we enter 2023. The good news, at least in my view, is that these impacts are all a natural part of the cycle. I think we talked about it a bit before, but I think what we do have in the background is many companies getting themselves ready for an exit, but waiting to pull the trigger until they have more visibility. So what that, what that means, at least in my view, is we're going to see a return to normal as soon as there's more clarity on the macro backdrop and the broader environment. And at that time, we're going to see lots of great companies coming to market and looking for the right capital partner. Yeah, well, very interesting. I, I do think your last answer gave us a nice summary, kind of touching on economic volatility, the credit markets, and, and investor sentiment. So, Patrick and Katie, that brings us to the end of uh, our discussion. Thank you both for sharing your insights with our listeners today. This was certainly uh, very enlightening, I know for me, and I hope our listeners. And uh, I look forward to seeing how this all plays out uh, in the coming months. You guys gave me a few predictions there. So, I'll follow up with both of you and, and, and we'll see how things play out. Thanks, Todd. I really enjoy chatting with you and Patrick and uh, appreciate you having me on. Yep, my pleasure. And Patrick, same thing, Morgan Stanley Capital Partners. I've been working with you guys for years, as, as have my colleagues. We appreciate everything and, and thanks for your time today. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me and thanks for a great conversation. Hopefully talk to you both soon. Yeah, sounds good. Well, to our listeners, Thanks so much for listening in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. 
The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.